All right. We are back. Mike and Paul, political theory and um, other stuff. Uh, speaking of, if you want to get a hold of us, contact us, talk about how shitty our takes are. We're on Twitter at polytheorypod. And our email is and.um.otherstuff at gmail.com. Uh, and if you love our takes, obviously, you can go to patreon.com uh, backslash polytheory and other stuff. We would uh, love to hear from any and all of you. And today we are wrapping up. This is our overview episode for The Racial Contract by Charles W. Mills. We're going to talk about, we're going to read some some quotes that we found to be impactful, and we're going to talk about the book overall. Yeah, I'll let um, I'll let Paul start off, and then we'll go from there. Yeah, and then just like a side note about today's episode, this is what we took away from the racial contract and things that stood out to us. Uh, by no claim are these the most important things in the book or what you should have taken out of the book. It is, uh, once again, our podcast. So these are the things that stood out to us. Um, and Mike gave you that contact information. If you would like to discuss our takes, yeah. please, please. Uh, and we are, uh, I know it seems unbelievable, but uh, we would even be open for guests. I know a podcast of our size and our caliber doesn't seem like that would be an option. Truly, if you have something to say or you think you could to add to us and, and have the equipment and you're not um, really vile or something, <laughs> we, we would love to have you on. I guess uh, just real quickly, I mean, I know you sat through us with the book, but I, I think a good place to start would just be a, just a quick recap of, of what the racial contract is. We, we, the book, it's the title of the book, and, and we talk about it a lot, but just a quick summary. On page 10, I think he does a great way uh, of explaining it, and that is, as I have emphasized, the racial contract seeks to account for the way things are and how they came to be that way. The descriptive as well as the way they should be, the normative, since indeed one of its complaints about white political philosophy is precisely its otherworldliness, its ignoring of basic political realities. But the racial contract, as we will see, is also epistemological, prescribing norms for cognition, which its signatories must adhere, a preliminary characterization characterization would run something like this. The racial contract is that set of formal or informal agreements or meta agreements, um, which set contracts about contracts, which set limits of the contract's validity between the members of one subset of humans, henceforth designated, designated by shifting racial, racial, uh, phenotypical, genealogical, cultural criteria as white and coextensive with the class of full persons to categorize the remaining subset of humans as non-white. So just a quick recap, it is the structuring of society where there is a group of people that are white and have all of the access um, to all of the benefits of society and then subpersons generally categorized as non-whites who are exploited to achieve this society for the white subset. Uh, and with Charles Mills and for the rest of this book, that is the basis of Western um, civilization more so than any other um, sort of societal contract. Um, yeah, it's like the the foundation that all the other contracts are put on top of. Right. And just a quick subset that's at the end of that paragraph, just a reminder that all whites are beneficiaries of the contract, though some whites are not signatories to it, um, which I think is really important just to keep in mind, you know, like I, I would probably categorize myself 
has not being a signatory signet you know i didn't sign it i'm not happy it exists but it would be ridiculous for me to pretend that i don't benefit from it you know you don't have to participate in it or you don't have to have created to it to benefit from it or be a part of it Um, yeah i've got one quote i want to throw in from 90 from page 93 that uh, touches on the same thing, kind of. um, And it says, um, racism and racially structured discrimination have not been deviations from the norm. They have been the norm, not merely in the sense of de facto statistical distribution patterns, but he goes on in a sense of being formally codified, written down and proclaimed as such. From this perspective, the racial contract has underwritten the social contract so that duties, rights, and liberties have routinely been assigned on a racially differentiated basis. And I, I think that's uh, super important to, to remember that it is, uh, it is the norm, you know, not a deviation from the norm. Right. It's exactly what everything is based off of. Uh, another quote I really liked, and I'm going to go back a little bit, comes from page 18, and I touch on this concept quite a bit. Um, this quote uh, just goes, Thus, in effect, on matters related to race, the racial contract prescribes for its signatories an inverted epistemology, an epistemology of ignorance, a particular pattern of localized and global cognitive dysfunctions, which are psychologically and socially functioning producing the ironic outcome that whites will in general be unable to understand the world that they themselves have made. Um, I just think that's important because it's it's what makes so much of this so devious is that you – I don't know how to put this without sounding terrible, but there are so many groupings of, of white folks, let's say in middle, middle America, that aren't even – aware of the racial contract or its impacts because they're ignorant to history. They have been so removed from the reality of the regular world by the racial contract um, that they can't even necessarily begin to understand it or see them because once again, they were removed from a lot of, um, you know, you're not, you're not given the tragic history uh, of a lot of what happened, the things of that nature. And so when you're presented with it, it feels like an attack or that somebody is um, calling you a liar or whatever. Uh, and it's it's just kind of based off of, of the fact that you weren't given that information, if that makes sense. So just the concept that the racial contract is so invasive that you can be the main beneficiary, the main motivator, and not even realize its existence, I think, part of why it's been so useful for you know the powers that be yeah and i know this uh this story is told a lot and i know it applies to a lot but i don't think that it makes it any less impactful and what i'm talking about is i, I think it was um uh what was the dude's name um that uh that wrote infinite jest um um david foster wallace yeah so the story that david foster wallace tells about the two young fish Coming across the old fish, oh, and God. and the and the old fish uh, says, uh, uh, "The water's nice today." And the young fish are like, "Oh, okay, yeah, have a nice day." And while they're swimming away, they look at each other and they say, "Water? What the fuck is water? What is this <laughs> yeah. guy talking about?" You know. And I think yep. I think that's like pretty on point. Um, and I think it applies yeah. to this. But I, I will push back on the the whole uh, on your. Uh, I will push back on your whole um, middle America thing because it's not just middle America. I mean, you think about like uh, Staten Island, you know, right. um, yeah. or you, th- you think about um, uh, 
even uh parts of um, chicago uh, although that's middle america but uh, uh san diego you yeah. know you, is a used to be a stronghold for or is still a stronghold for conservatism you know yeah. um th- there yeah. it's all over it's it's know. hard for, i almost want to throw in the south but uh, having spent some considerable time here i i don't believe that there's as many people who aren't aware of the actual history if that makes any sense you think more people are aware of the history yeah and that they just um are more okay with like i the amount of people who i've encountered who fully understand what the confederacy was about and things of that nature and still uh are openly into it feels a lot uh, more intentionally and i this is just me my anecdotal shit feels a lot um more actually negative than when i meet like a group of like nice mormon kids from utah or whatever who just Mm -hmm. like don't actually you know like it's both end up being terrible for society but i do feel like um one is more open about its hate the other thing that mills does a really good job at in in this book is showing how this was foundational to like contractarianism and that um some of the the key founders of what we would call today like the Enlightenment, I guess, um, were were also key founders of of the racial contract. On yep. uh, page seventy, it says, um, "For it turns out that Kant, widely regarded as the most important moral theorist of the modern period, in a sense the father of modern moral theory, and through the work of John Rawls and Jürgen Habermas." increasingly central to modern political philosophy as well, is also the father of the modern concept of race. His 1775 essay, The Different Races of Mankind, is a classic pro-hereditarian, anti-environmentalist statement of the, quote, immunability and permanence of race. For him, comments George Moss, racial makeup becomes an unchanging substance and the foundation of all physical appearance and human development, including intelligence. The famous theorist of personhood is also the theorist of subpersonhood, though this distinction is, in what the suspicious might also think, a conspiracy to conceal embarrassing truths far less well known. Uh, And I've got one more quote from uh, page 70. It says, Kant taught anthropology and physical geography for 40 years, and his philosophical work really has to be read in conjuncture with these lectures to understand how racialized his views on moral character were. His notorious comment in observations on the feeling of the beautiful and sublime is well known too, and often cited by black intellectuals. And a quote, so fundamental is the difference between the black and the white races of man. It appears to be as great in regard to mental capacities as in color. So that a clear proof that what a Negro said was stupid was that this fellow was quite black from head to foot. The point of um, Isa's essay is that this remark is by no means isolated or a casual throwaway line, though of course, of course, regrettable as no broader implications. Rather, 
it comes out of a developed theory of race and corresponding intellectual ability and limitation. And I think that's super important to remember that these dudes uh, lit- just literally thought, and it's hard to like wrap your mind around it, but literally thought that these were subpersons, they had uh, limited intelligence, and there was no way to like fix that. There was no, that these people were just always going to be like that, you know? Yep. Oh, for and I, I also uh, had page seventy, and it's yeah, it just really sticks out to me for a few reasons. One, obviously, I was ed- educated in this Western society, um, and this just really it hit me how invasive the racial contract really is, because I, when I was still in college, was taught with a lot of these Enlightenment thinkers, especially including Kant as being intellectual giants um, and people that we still need to respect and look to, you know, to modern, to navigate modern society. And they just hide a lot of this stuff. Um, not like, you know, I could have found it or on they my don't own think research. It's, it's, uh, or they don't think it's relevant, right. right? Exactly. And it's, I just, from the bottom of my heart, I think it's time for us to move on to different, more modern academic idols. Or to just not have idols uh, at all, you know? Right, right. To understand yes. that, that these guys might have had good ideas, but to look at the full context that these right. ideas came from, you know, is super important. And to, st- yeah, to like, we could look at them, because I mean, my problem with it is that I was still taught the Enlightenment um, in a lot of ways, like it was still the forefront of philosophical thought. Like it's still, you know, a lot of what we consider for making modern decisions, things of that nature. And maybe that was my particular program and not uh, a universal um, experience. But it's just like, the more I think about it, there are so few fields that do that. I mean, if you're studying medicine, there might be a couple talks about people who had it totally wrong a while ago, but it's not going to be the basis of your study. Like we are still basing a huge part of uh, philosophical studies and general liberal academic thought off of these assholes. Um, and I, I know that might sound rough, but I just, I don't think we need to be in a position um, where we are putting anybody who had racial thoughts like this on any sort of pedestal. Um, because it's so clear that just unbelievable destruction and tragedy uh, and, and inhumane actions that have been caused out of these lines of thought. And it, it just, for some reason, depresses me quite a bit to think that kids in college would still have a chance to leave college and think mostly positive things about these quote-unquote great men. And the more I learn about them, the more unjust um, that feels. Uh, yeah, It's not just Kant. You know, it's Kant. It's Hume. Right. It's, they caused... They gave the almost the moral foundation and the logical foundation for these acts in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. You know, like yeah. it's not terrible if this well thought out, well written, uh, very deep thinking person has given me a roadmap to how I can feel okay about myself and do this. What What you're saying here reminds me of the, the, this quote from uh, 103 and 104, I think. It says... Um, it might be 102 and 104, oh, okay. but because I've got a big break, a couple big breaks in here. But it says, um, but this represents an astonishing white amnesia about the actual his- historical record. Likewise, the despair- despairing question of how there can be a poetry after Auschwitz evokes the puzzled non-white reply of how there could have been poetry before Auschwitz and after the killing fields in Auschwitz. America, Africa, Asia. Amy um, Cesar pointed out 
the implicit double standard in European outrage at Nazism. It is Nazism, yes, but before Europeans were its victims, they were its accomplices. That they tolerated that Nazism before it was inflicted on them. That they absolved it, um, shut their eyes to it, legitimized it, because until then, it had been applied only to the non-European peoples. Auschwitz was the modern industrial application of a policy of extermination on which European world domination had long since rested. That's super, super, um, in my opinion, important. Yeah, I'm just going to toss in a little quote in between those two things from there. Um, which is basically what you said, but following that been applied to only non-European peoples. It's just that the, the Hitler's crime is the fact that he applied to European colonialist procedures, which until then had been res- reserved exclusively for the Arabs of Algeria, the Coolies of India, and the Blacks of Africa. And so I, I think that's important on a few things. It's one, just, um, and I, I think I have a quote that talks about this too, but at no way... Is Charles Mills insinuating that only black people have been on the negative end um, of the racial contract? And I think this is a decent example of it. But it was the tragedies, all of these things um, were invented to be used on people of color. So, you know, other victims ended suit, but the basis of it, the basis of thought, the basis of we can do this to other human beings. Um, was based on a a very much kind of black and white or people of color and white racial contract, if you will. Um, Hitler just took white people out of the capital W white. Uh, And it's, you know, I think it's, it's hard for me to wrap my head around that every, not every, but the majority of Americans you can talk to will clearly understand that Hitler was evil and that what Hitler did was evil, but they won't be able to make that same leap to Andrew Jackson or to you know, uh, um, what America did to the Philippines or things of that nature, um, that it's still in the year 2021. Um, if something in an, uh, a Western civilized country happens to white people, it's still on a scale of tragedy far more than when it happens um, to non-white people. From uh, page 89, it's a quote uh, of some some dude that's um, uh, like in charge of, of um, Indian native Native Americans, and it says, uh, make him a Native American, a non-person. Human rights are for people. Uh, Convince Indians their ancestors were savages, that they were pagan. And I think that that's that's a good example of, you know, not just being, um, you know, black people, at being, um, like we said, like you said at the beginning, a racial contract. And I don't think I have a quote from it. But uh, at the end of the book, when he's talking about the Japanese, right, and how mm-hmm. like um, they were, when it was convenient, they were given like quote unquote personhood whiteness. at times yeah. and whiteness, yeah. capital double W whiteness, like leg- legally through court systems, right, right. And then when it was uh, inconvenient, um, like when the U.S. was invading um, the the places that they that the Japanese had conquered, then that that whiteness was was revoked. You know, right? Which I I find ironic because people like Ben Shapiro and stuff uh, will bring up Japanese internment camps um, as you know proof that they understand that America does wrong things. But I find it ironic that they can bring that up, but never bring up Native American reservations or anything else. And I wonder if that is because in their heads, Japanese people are that close to the capital W whiteness 
that it just seems worse to them um, and that they can't even understand um, people who are further removed from it. Uh, Very similar spacing in the book and just something I also wanted to talk on um, was just that concept of creating subpersonhood, that it it wasn't accidental, um, that it sure as hell isn't a natural uh, phenomenon uh, within human interaction, that it, you know, it took generations of seasoning and just breaking people down. Uh, The quote I have is, for the non-whites, this is something like the intellectual equivalent of the physical process of seasoning, slave-breaking, the aim being to produce an entity who accepts subpersonhood. Frederick Douglass, in his famous first autobiography, describes the need to darken the moral and mental vision as far as possible to annihilate the power of reason of the slave. And I think that's important for just a lot of reasons. One, uh, it proves that nobody naturally fell in um, to these patterns. It wasn't like these human-created concepts of race ran into each other and one was immediately like, okay, you'll be in charge and I'll just do whatever the fuck uh, you tell me to. It took hundreds of years of mental and physical torture, of rewriting history, of hiding things or highlighting things that aren't really true. I just wanted to point out once again that this is nothing resembling a natural process. It's probably the least natural and most inhumane thing. Or like um, uh, that it's it's not a natural hierarchy. Right, yes, yeah. There is no natural caste system. There is no... And uh, that that goes to... That reminds me of that whole Kanye West thing. Yes, Where he was yes. like, you know, like... Uh, 500 years of slaves? That's a choice! Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, these people were imprisoned in their minds. And it's like, yep. you, uh, you want to know why they were imprisoned in their minds? You know, it was because they were ripped from their communities. They were intentionally put with people that didn't speak the same language yep. they did um, from other parts of Africa. And then they had the shit beat out of them for days, weeks, whatever, months. And then the nothing resembling humanity was ever allowed. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, it's not like art was allowed. It's not like, you know, any time. And when it, when it was allowed, when art was allowed, like I think about the um, listening, w- watching the Ken Burns documentary on jazz, they talk about in New Orleans, they had this square uh, in the heart of New Orleans where on Sundays the slaves were allowed to get together and do like a drum circle sort of thing. So when art was allowed, it was allowed only in the framework that the masters would allow. If, if things ever got too rowdy or they didn't like the songs that were being sung or the dance moves that were being done, um, then they would step in and, and prevent that. So what is art if you're, it's, uh, if you're not allowed to express it in your way? Exactly. And this is uh, a little bit of a questionable transition. But uh, since we're talking about art, and since I would say that one thing that this Western society has been good at is stealing... Yep. Things from other cultures and then pretending that it was theirs the whole time, um, yep. which this quote kind of from 34 really stood out to me. So on the page, I believe 34, it's uh, I'm not going to read the whole quote, kind of just the end. But uh, the assumption that Europe functions autonomously from other parts of the world, that Europe is its own origin, final end and agent, and that Europe and people of European descent in the Americas and elsewhere owe nothing to the rest of the world. That is something I see constantly uh, in modern um, uh, discussions that I have online um, of people constantly telling me 
how fucked up and backwards and shitty the world would be if it wasn't for Western civilization. Um, and I just don't, you know, I, I, that couldn't be farther from the truth. Just any history you look at, you look at global history and great things happen all over the place. They're never segregated to races. They're never segregated to geographical places. Uh, and, it, you know, it switches. There was a thousand years, maybe that's an exaggeration of time span, but there was a very large amount of time where Baghdad was the center of intelligence on the planet. You know, uh, it's been China, it's been India, it's been, there are all kinds of places um, that you could look to as being the most intellectually uh, forward place. It's certainly not a European Exclusive concept. Thing. Exclusive. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's there's very easy instances to point to, uh, i.e. just uh, Europe during the Middle Ages, you know. Mm-hmm. They're dealing with the plague by self-flagellating and burning people and, uh, you know, praying to God and and literally, like, killing the people who are suggesting this might not be a curse from God. This might be something we could um, deal with. And then you go over to, um, you know, like Baghdad and, and places of... Um, uh, Islamic thought at the time, and, and they instantly realized that, like, okay, this is a disease. Um, I'm not sure if they completely understood it was fleas, but they knew it was attached to rats, uh, and they, they didn't have to deal with it. Um, and so that's just less than 700 years ago that Europe was um, kind of the intellectual um, shithole uh, of the world um, in comparison. So uh, all that was just to say that, once again, um, this this isn't natural, and that even the European dominance that we see today uh, would not have been possible um, without the complete exploitation uh, of the rest of the world. Not only for their labor, but also for their inventions, for their thought, for their ways of life. Yeah. Well, and speaking of the 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 Ken Burns jazz thing, I remember uh, in that I can't remember what um, New Orleans based white artist it was, but some white artist claimed for the rest of his life that he invented jazz and that it had nothing to do with black people, you know, and a lot of people obviously um, bought that lie, um, you know, in the, in the first half of the 20th century. Yes. Yes, they sure did. Just some other things I want to talk about that this book made me think of uh, that I just hadn't considered very much prior and and um i'm just glad i'm aware of it now Uh, i think kind of earlier on in the book one of the things that first stood out to me was that concept of the racialization of space i had it had just never you know gone through my head um before and i'm I'm not going to read all the quotes um but it's kind of uh just the concept that the having a normal space or a norming of space uh, is is partially done in terms of the racing of space. The depiction of space has dominated by individuals, uh, whether persons or subpersons of a certain race. At the same time, the norming of the individual is partially achieved by spacing it. That is, representing it as imprinted with the characteristics of a certain kind of space. Um, so this is a mutually supporting characterization that for subpersons becomes a circular indictment. You are what you are in part because you originate from a certain kind of space. And that space has those properties in part because it is inhabited, inhabited by creatures like yourself. And I, I guess the reason... It, I just feel so silly for not really understanding or, oh shit, sorry for the sound of the background, or realizing that concept before I read this book. Um, because there's just so much material um, about it, obviously, like talked in this book, things like the heart of darkness um, and things of that nature. Uh, but for some reason, that was just uh, a connection 
uh, that really became apparent to me because of this book, um, how much the racialization of the wilds and things like that were, were really tied in, in that circular notion um, that you are wild because of this space and this space sucks because of you. Thank God we're here to save you um, sort of shit. And how that even like translates to modern day with with phrases like the urban jungle. Yes. You know, good call, man. Good call. So, yeah, it's just it's so, yeah, the space isn't even necessary. They can racialize any space, which is, yeah, it's just something that should have been obvious to me. Um, but for whatever reason, the way um, that this book put it um, really really made me understand it a little bit more and also just like the whole like black bodies thing yes the whole idea that like uh that black people are um inherently like bestial and sexual and physical whereas uh white people are inherently like um intellectual talking heads disciplined um above our bodily needs sort of shit um the other thing i you know we've talked about systemic racism quite a bit this just uh, on page 84 i thought um was a really um succinct um maybe not explanation but examples of systemic racism Uh, and i'll just start um but since people could always fake acceptance of subpersonhood, it was, of course, necessary to keep an eternally vigilant eye on them for possible signs of dissembling, in keeping with the sentiment that eternal vigilance is the price of freedom. The coercive arms of the state, then, the police, the penal system, the army, need to be seen as, in part, the enforcers of the racial contract, working both to keep the peace and prevent crime among white citizens and to maintain the racial order and detect and Detroit destroy challenges to it, so that across the white settler states, non-whites are incarcerated at differential rates and for longer terms. It's, yeah, it's just that that concept that these bodies that exist in the government, you know, systemic racism is that they operate differently for different races, that they serve different purposes for different races, uh, and that you might not be able to see that, and that it might not, you know, show up in the statistics of your town and stuff. But that is why these things exist. That's why these bodies exist, is to reinforce and maintain the hegemony, uh, which in our case is this obscene racial contract. Once again, just wanted to hammer in some some systemic racism stuff. Or at least the part of the, the hegemony that this text focuses on. This is on, correct, correct. I have a couple last things to talk about. And this is just kind of a reminder for me, something to keep uh, in mind, is just that kind of concept of, um, you know, we talked about it earlier, but just that being white inherently means that we are a beneficiary to this contract, that for hundreds of years, your relatives have been a beneficiary to this contract. Um, so I guess what I'm trying to say is that as a white person, sometimes it's hard to acknowledge or admit, but I will just never understand the impression or the truly vile nature of what it's like to live under this because I'm on the beneficiary side. Uh, and I just wanted to point out some of that stuff and kind of talk about how he talks about white renegades, um, and race traders and things of that nature. You know, some people obviously lost their lives, John Brown, um, but that even as a race trader or when trying to help, just to remind yourself that you're still not in as bad of a position, if that makes sense. Uh-huh. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. to not adopt any victimhood, to just understand that, yeah, that I, all I can do is help or try to make it better. Um, I I won't be able to have the same skin in the game. I won't, you know, I should never 
posit myself as like understanding it on the same level or things of that nature. And I think that just stood out to me and, and something I need to remind myself that has kind of a white person. And this isn't a racist statement. This isn't a segregationist statement. It's just, I think, a matter of fact that living in America, I'll never be able to understand the fear and just the ostracization that comes from not being a part of that capital white polity. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I think that's that's kind of most of what really, really stood out to me. Obviously, the, the whole book is just amazing. Um, and that was yeah. the hardest part of this for me, um, was trying to piecemeal out things that I didn't want to talk about. Because I think ideally, I would have just like read the whole book again verbatim for our conclusion episode. You, yeah, I feel the same way. I think it's a a great work, you know, I, I feel like it's super uh, instructive. And, uh, you know, even though it's, it's over 20 years old, it still is very relevant. Y- you know, I hope that us doing this podcast encourages at least a few people to read the book themselves. Yeah. And it's, you know, uh, um, I'll admit when we first picked it, um, you know, it's, it's a shorter book, and uh, I'll be honest that I didn't have the expectations for it that it, it provided. Yeah, I just, I think our country would be in a lot better place if this was like a required high school text. Because nothing in it is outlandish. Um, nothing in it, uh, I, I didn't find anything even exaggeratory or, um, yeah, Bombastic. I just think it, bom- yeah. yeah, exactly. It's And also, just for modern philosophy, the prose, it's so readable. Yeah. A, a very powerful, very impactful book. And uh, I, I could not recommend it more. And for those of you uh, who are on this this whole season with us, um, you know, once again, just thank you for listening. And uh, yeah, we appreciate the support and, and the listens. Absolutely. And uh, we will be um, doing a little article, and then and then on to our next project. So we look forward to it. Awesome. Well, as always, thanks for listening, and have a great day. <laughs>